It has been two years, two months, and fifteen days since I last treated a patient. I introduced some of the awe I gained for what the human body is capable of in my story of burnout episode. Today I want to go deep on what I said in the, that episode. Specifically, that professional athletes are simply better than the rest of us. I am most certainly both kinds of nerd, academic and pop culturally. When I say mutants, I mean the superhumans we've all seen in video games and movies. While it's true that video games and movies can go into exaggerations of what I mean by mutants, it's not entirely as exaggerated as you might think. I also want to go into some of the academic version of nerd to talk about mutants. Many of you have probably heard of the bell curve when talking about a sample population. The bell curve is a mathematical representation of the probability of a thing happening put into a visual medium. The middle of the bell is the most likely event, occurrence, behavior, whatever, to occur with the likelihood significantly decreasing the further you get from the middle of the bell shape. For today's episode, we're going to use the bell curve to talk about human performance. When I say performance, I don't just mean athletic ability, I mean all aspects of performance. A mathematical genius solving insane problems quickly would be another kind of human performance. Going back to the bell curve, the purest definition of average performance is the middle of the bell. This person would be the definition of unremarkable. They are neither good nor bad at whatever its subject it is we're talking about. Since we're talking about the entire human species, we also have to cover a range of people in reference to the most average person. The bell shape is based on the volume of people who are less and less average, so to speak. Imagine a two-dimensional bell with the base that is about six inches long. For those of you in the world who don't use an idiotic measuring system, let's call the base of the bell 60 centimeters. Then draw a vertical line up the middle, dividing the bell into two equal halves. Now move one inch or 10 centimeters to the left of the middle line and draw another vertical line, doing the same on the right side. Do this one more time at another one inch or 10 centimeters further, left and right. Looking at the whole bell, you've divided it into six equal segments. Each segment is called a standard deviation. These are clusters of probability. So the first segment to the left and right from the midline is the first standard deviation from the mean. Mathematically, this represents about 68% of the population, or there is a 68% probability of a random point being in this area of the bell. If we add a second standard deviation to both sides, we now have 95% of the bell represented. Adding the third segment on both sides will give us 99.7% of the total population or probability. When I speak about professional athletes, I'm talking about the third standard deviation away from the mean in performance, or the segment that is all the way to the right side of the bell. This means that of the human population who participate in a given activity, less than 2.5% of people will be elite enough to reach professional level. Of all the people who play a sport, say American football, less than 2.5% of, of those people will make it to the NFL. These are the mutants the superior specimens of the population. If you want to get really fun with math, we can take all NFL players and make a bell curve out of that population too, which means that there are mutants among the mutants that make up professional players. For simplicity's sake going forward, I'm going to continue referencing NFL athletes because that's the professional group that I worked with the most in my PT career. 
Just remember, any time I speak about NFL athletes, the same thing applies to professional chess players or video game players or violinists or insert any activity here that you can be a professional at. There's a lot of factors required to become an NFL athlete. A great deal of hard work and time, no small amount of right time, right place, some luck. These are all equally uh, required, but fundamentally, you have to be a mutant first. Your body must be built differently than the average person to make it to the NFL. There's no small amount of hard work and practice that, that will be enough to make it to that level of elite. After all, lots of people work very hard. Even if you're the hardest worker in your community, there are lots of communities. The best players of each community come together, for example, in college football. Now we've created another layer of separation from the high school athlete. Each step up in level of reaching professional athlete status comes with the weed out of most of the population, over 95%, in fact. Call back to the bell curve. There are so many layers of weeding people out, in other words, bell curves inside of bell curves, that being a mutant is a job requirement of being an NFL athlete. I don't mean to shatter any young person's dreams, but math is math. If you're not a mutant, you're not going to make it to the top. There is, unfortunately, no real way to know who is and who isn't a mutant today, though. So keep working your ass off, because if you don't, even if you are a mutant, you won't get to the professional level without the hard work. Part of that weed out is that there are mutants who also work extremely hard. You need to do all the things to reach the big stage. Totally random tangent, but I feel the need to dispel a myth. I have never met a dumb NFL athlete. I've not met them all. I've not met most of them. So there may be some, but it would be a significant minority of that group. The stereotype of big dumb football player is flat out false. The game of American football is similar to chess. I did not come up with this analogy. I heard it first from John Urschel, who was an offensive lineman in the NFL while working on his PhD in mathematics at MIT. Case in point of, there are very smart football players. In case you're wondering, I'm not violating patient-provider confidentiality. I never met the man. I just heard him use that analogy in a talk he gave, and I'm, I really enjoyed what he had to say with it. The game of American football is 11 players versus 11 players throughout the game. Each player has a position that is extremely specialized, meaning that it is exceedingly rare that a player can have one position and then change to a new one and still be successful in the NFL. There's no difference in it's no different than how a knight cannot be a rook in chess. As an NFL athlete, you need to deeply understand your position and be able to read and predict 11 other opponents' positions, their movements, their behaviors, and you have to do it in real time, just like speed chess. Once again, weed out comes into play. If you're a mutant, you work super hard, but you didn't study, then you've lost the edge to the person who did all three of those things. Anyway, now that I've spent an inordinate amount of time on math, statistics, and probability distributions, let's talk about what I mean physically when I say mutant. Again, I introduced the first NFL player I ever worked with in the Burnout Story episode. I mentioned that his movement suggested to me that his L3 nerve pathway was not fully engaging. 
This was an active player who had a small knee procedure that resulted in him coming to the facility I worked at just to rehab on the underwater treadmill. No part of his rehab had anything to do with the L3 pathway. The only association was a back injury at the L3-L4 region a few years earlier. The years since the back injury, he was playing at full potential, demonstrating incredible feats of strength and speed on television every single week. I talked about how I did a quick 10-minute treatment that massively improved his running pattern, but this wasn't the only time I worked with him. After a few days from the initial meeting, I did a manual muscle test on him. For non-providers, a manual muscle test is where I put my hand somewhere on your limb and ask you to resist me, trying to move the limb in some way. It gives me a rough idea if you have relatively normal strength or if there's a problem. As you might imagine, I would put much higher force into a professional football player's knee than I would a 90-year-old man who requires a wheelchair to get around. Here's where the story gets crazy. This player had so much weakness in so many key muscle, leg muscles that he legitimately presented like he had a partial spinal cord injury. His weakness was on par with the 90-year-old man who needs a wheelchair. It made no sense at all. Here he is with so much weakness. He should struggle to stand, let alone walk. And yet a few days before, I watched him play a full game and played impressively at, at that throughout the entire game. I still to this day cannot reconcile his manual muscle test and his physical performance. The gist is that his body was so good at compensating for deficits that there was no drop in his performance abilities. This is a feature of professional athletes. Their ability to find compensatory strategies is default. I talked to this player about what I found and how confused I was. I asked him if he knew that he had so many weaknesses. He told me that he had no idea either. I laughed. Is that normal for you? He looked at me without batting an eye. Yeah, I didn't know it was unusual to be able to adapt like this until you just told me. My whole life has been like this, so as far as I knew, it was normal. As I worked with more, more and more players, I quickly discovered that this adaptability really was the norm. I worked with a lineman at one point in time. For those of you not familiar with American football, the various players who make up the lineman positions are generally the largest guys on the field. They're tall, strong, and it's relatively common for these guys to weigh more than 300 pounds. His body shape is one of having a large, round belly. This isn't something surprising to see in a person who weighs more than 300 pounds. No one talked about it, no one thought about it, because it's just expected. I did a postural analysis on him, and similar to the first guy I worked with, his analysis suggested to me that the L1 nerve pathway wasn't kicking in all the way. He also had some mild low back pain. For the non-providers out there, the L1 pathway has a fair amount of control of your lower abdominal muscles. I did a treatment with him to reboot that pathway, and then when he stood up, his belly deflated. It turned out he didn't have a big fat gut at all. His abdominals just weren't kicking in. So that rounded shape was just his organs pushing against the abdominal wall, and he couldn't really fight back against it. This guy was incredibly strong by nature, and his adaptability to very limited abdominal control still allowed him to play his position well. For frame of reference, this guy could bench press over 500 pounds. And while bench pressing over 400 pounds isn't unusual in the NFL, getting over 500 is still pretty inf- impressive even for them. Now that he had core control re-engaged, he could actually make use of all of that strength. 
To me, the most impressive thing wasn't how he responded. At this point, I had learned that the amazing response to treatment was expected with these guys. It seems pretty unlikely that a person can do all of the crazy things professional athletes do without having a highly tuned nervous system. It's like a Ferrari compared to the Toyota Corolla of a nervous system the rest of us have. What was crazy with this guy was that I only needed to see him for two weeks, and for the rest of his career, he didn't have that round belly return. While there were other injuries that occurred in his career, to my knowledge, he never had back pain again. The last player I'll talk about was one who was early in retirement and considering returning to the game. He had extensive injuries and surgeries, as many do who actually make it beyond the average career length of 3.3 years. I didn't start working with him until after he finished his last season, so he had many years of buildup of inappropriate movement patterns, and he had been compensated for all of them along the way. Were I to have a non-professional athlete in his state, I would anticipate at least two to three months of unpacking the compensation chains before we could even begin working on increasing performance. Of course, I've learned how quickly professional athletes' twisted-up patterns can be unwound, but I was still assuming that increasing performance wouldn't happen right away. There is an exercise that was always my favorite to do with patients. I don't have a name for it, and I've never been able to find it in an exercise library or even on YouTube. It's not that I'm some genius inventor of an exercise, I just don't think people often think at this level of motor control. It is, in essence, taking a walking step against asymmetrical resistance. The setup is to stand on one foot, the other behind you with your big toe touching the ground. The same side hand as the foot that all of your weight is on is holding a handle that is attached to a cable machine behind you with about 5 to 10 pounds of resistance. Minus the fact that the elbow is bent on the hand holding the cable machine handle, it should look like someone is frozen in the mid-stance phase of walking. The exercise is quite simply, quite simple to explain from here. Finish the gait cycle from toe-off to heel strike of the foot that you're stand, not standing on. In other words, take a step. Execution of this is incredibly difficult, though. Fundamentally, walking is a few simple macro, macro concepts but coordinating these movements in the face of dysfunction in the dysfunctional way we train our bodies to move makes these few concepts incredibly hard to execute. Call back to the last episode where I called an ergonomic desk setup a myth. There are four elements I point out in teaching this exercise. First, you need to sync up the opposite arm and leg. The way I explain it is that the upper arm and the opposite thigh should always be parallel to each other. Second, the right lower rib cage and the left upper pelvis should try to move toward the belly button at the same time the right arm and left leg move forward. Obviously, the same is true for the opposite side. Third, the movement forward should originate from the stance leg butt cheek. In actuality, it's far more from the hamstring with the support of the butt, but it's easier for people to feel their butt contract than it is their upper hamstring. I like to say that the butt should be the driver. The fourth is the hardest part for most. The swing leg pelvis should raise up toward the sky during the leg swing. This action comes from the stance leg gluteus medius muscle, which for non-providers is the muscle on the outside of your hip. 
This is a great deal of instructions, and coordinating all of the actions simultaneously is incredibly challenging. The quote-unquote form check for this is that you should be able to create the same level of stability no matter the step speed. Generally, if you move faster, it's easier to hide in its instabilities just by momentum alone. The single step against resistance should be able to be done with perfect form while slowing the movement down to take a full six seconds to complete at least. There should be no distinguishable difference in gross motor form when moving in slow-mo compared to normal speed. I'm under no delusion that most people, even providers, are probably pretty lost at what I just tried to describe. Without me in front of you demonstrating or at least a video of the movement to go on with the instructions, it's pretty unlikely you've got a good handle on what I mean. It's just that complicated. Going back to the retired player I was referring to, I did what I normally do with most. I rapid-fire said all four elements while performing one step as I spoke. The point of the rapid-fire is not to expect someone to get it, it's just to demonstrate how much is going on in, in a single step. It's an introduction to what I expect will take people a solid six weeks of practice to master the single step, let alone the complications of one step having to be rapidly alternated between two sides of the body. This player said, all right, I think I got it. He took the handle of the cable machine, did a couple of test steps to feel things out, then on the eighth repetition, demonstrated a perfect step. To put it a different way, he went from basic algebra to doing trigonometry with only about a paragraph of instruction. Last episode, I referenced how we have hardwired patterns in our brain for basic functional movement patterns. This player had years of improper patterns built up, and in one single session, with a little nervous system reboot treatment and a few instructions, he went back to a clean slate. Getting a clean slate takes weeks to months for normal people. For him, it was an hour. We started working on increasing his performance the next time we met. This is the amazingness that is professional athletes. Even though most of my work was with NFL athletes, over my career I worked with multiple forms of professional. Ballet dancer, cyclist, runner, it was all the same. While the activities are wildly different from each other, the principles of what makes up a professional athlete is the same. I'm going to do a little breakdown of that to show you what I mean. It might be worth grabbing a pen to write these numbers down, because I think for some people listening to it, you may miss how incredible this is. At the time of this recording, the world record for the marathon is 2 hours, 1 minute, and 39 seconds. The world record for the 100-meter dash is 9.58 seconds. If we turn the marathon time into seconds, the record took 7,299 seconds. A marathon has 42,194.988 meters. So, if we were to break the marathon into 100-meter segments, the world record marathon runner was running a pace of 17.29 seconds per 100 meters for the entire marathon. To put that into context, an average high school sprinter without any chance of making it to the professional level runs a 100 meter dash in about 13 to 14 seconds. A 17.29 second 100 meter dash is an eternity compared to the world record 9.58. However, the world record marathoner had a lifetime of training to be a marathoner. 
not a sprinter, and still ran 17.29 second pace. The difference between the sprinter and the marathoner is in that third standard deviation. They both worked hard, mastered one activity. They had genetically favorable conditions, but their body's ability to to perform was no different. It's the one constant at the highest level of professional athletes. They are the mutants living among, among us. It is super fun to work with them, to really experience a body that breaks all the rules and really reinforces how much I really love the human body. That's all I've got for today. As always, never settle for mediocre, but be careful how hard you burn striving for greatness. Sometimes that cost is more than your mind can afford.